Are you an HR department of one trying to figure out how to balance task and strategy while keeping up with changes in regulatory compliance? Do you need a fresh outlook on old topics? Then stop what you're doing, grab your coffee, and get ready to recharge. If you have people, you have problems to solve and things to do. Your host is Brenda Neckvottel, a 20-year human resource professional, ready to explore the HR industry with veterans of business and life with fresh eyes and new ideas. Learn about the rapidly evolving changes in employment law around the country, as well as new tactics to deploy and build engagement in your workforce. If you're looking to implement new practices to make your job easier in HR, then this podcast is for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Best Practices in Human Resources podcast. My name is Brenda Neckbottle, and if you are a first-time listener, I am so excited to welcome you to the show. Thank you so very much for joining in, and if you are a returning listener, thank you, oh my gosh, for continuing to stay on this journey. Um, It's absolutely fantastic and very, very fortunate. I am so excited today because I am not only joined by the woman that she and I had an instant friendship, an instant connection, and obviously an awful lot in common, but she's uber smart, and she agreed when I had this wacky idea to do a podcast, and we said, oh yeah, we're going to do a podcast, (laughs) and then we're going to invite some really cool people, and... I am so grateful that she agreed and she's on she's on this journey with me and we've been able to cajole and encourage and sometimes charm people to chat with us just like today. So Brenda, you are the catalyst for getting today's partner. <laughs> I just want to thank you. Well, no problem. Well, welcome. Well, hello and welcome to you too. I mean, <laughs> holy cow. That was, you, you blow me out of the water with introductions sometimes. I don't always know what to say. It's just very humbling. But so Tyra is awesome. She is our in-house PR guru. Um, she is just a phenomenal human being. Um, you're in, we did meet together in Las Vegas in 2000, January, 2018 at SHOT Show. Um, if you've if you've been following us up until this point, you've heard our history of, of how we connected. And literally, you know, thank God. I mean, we're like country bookends. You've got one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. And what? you poor people are in the middle <laughs> between the two of us and our load of energy. So, so uh, yeah, so we're super excited. I honestly, I don't even know who's more excited, her or me. So, um uh, <laughs> Me, yeah, I know, right? I am. I'm like googly stupid about this because we've got somebody very special that's joining us today. Okay, so can I like tell him yet? Yes, you really? can. Yes, you can. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay, so uh, backstory on this. So you know, we spent God, we spent what three months really designing this show. About that. Believe it or not. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> we spent three months designing the show. Ms. Positive over here. Anyway, and we started talking about, it's like, well, you know, we should have a guest. And then we're like, but you know what? The first guest needs to be super special. I mean, this is, this is a new show. I mean, you want 
you want it to be memorable. You want it to make an impact and you want it to be really, really super important. So, so I came up with an idea and she was like, Oh yeah, love it. And then we, had, we have no idea how to get a hold of this person. <laughs> and I'm like, well, aren't you the PR lady? <laughs> so, so after that laughter, we uh, were like, okay, so we drafted this letter, we reviewed it and sent it out to what we thought was the email address, which it turned out that it actually was, uh, we just didn't hear anything back. So I thought, okay, so we're not quitters by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> so there I am. It's about, I don't know, one thirty in the morning. I can't sleep. You know, you know what that's like. You're laying in bed. You got your cell phone, like you're holding it up over your head. And, and you're just starting to get tired enough to where you lose, you know, it slips and it smacks you in the face. That, that was about where it was. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like looking and looking. And I went to the guy's website and I, and I saw this, it's a submit your question here. And I went, ah, bingo, found one. So I did. I submitted a question. It had nothing to do with what we wrote in the letter and um, made it very Why simple. Did you ignore us? Yeah, you know, I was like holding my breath. And I'm like, you know what? If the guy responds, great. If not, then, you know, we got to go back to the drawing board. So sure enough, I get an email the next, and I'm just like, oh, oh. And I decided that I wanted to just not tempt fate and not like ruin it for Chira. So made the set up the meeting and called her up and I said, you're not going to believe this. And sure enough, he agreed to be on the show and we are super, super excited about this. Um, I literally, I couldn't sleep for like two days before we actually brought him on for, to do the interview because we're just so excited. It really means a lot to us and we're so thankful that he decided to join so did i miss anything well i think you missed the fact are you going to give some bio on him or well I mean, he is an extraordinary speaker and yes. coach yes i'm just priming it for you darling you no, continue you, on <laughs> you go ahead you, you lay all the compliments about him you want right now go for it because you're right he is he well first of all he's a hero he served in the U.S. military. He actually, um, he is the most effervescent and brilliant. I, I consider him a poet. And shockingly, he has a, his minor in college was like poetry or literature or something like that. He goes and he talks to Fortune 100 companies. He talks to professional sports teams. He talks to executives from around the world on how to employ excellence and how to beat the negative insurgency. He is a phenom who will only get bigger and bigger. And we are so mm -hmm. grateful that he decided to chat with us. That's right. Hey, and he's wait. talking to yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't scare him off. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> so without further ado, friends, thank you very much for joining us again. If you have joined us for the first time, this is literally going to be one hell of a show. Um, buckle up, grab some coffee, grab whatever you need to consume. I don't want to know what it is. But <laughs> welcome to the show, David Rutt Rutherford. Today we have David Rutt Rutherford 
also known as Froglogic, we've got some great questions for him about how he transitioned from a career from the U.S. Navy SEAL teams to a business owner and an entrepreneur. And we're going to get into some banter amongst the three of us about how challenges of business and exist and, and how to learn more about how he navigates the PR and the HR waters because we're going to put him on the spot. That's just what we do. And then as well as um, just seeing how helping business reaches... No HR issues! <laughs> You know what those are called? Those are called liberty incidences. And, and they're handled very differently in our world. Yeah, well, we won't send you the captain's mask. You'll be fine. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so anyway, so we're going to see what it is that he sees in, in helping businesses reach their pinnacle levels of success. And as you can tell, we're already off to a great start here. But it is with great excitement that we introduce David Rutherford to the show Welcome, my friend. How the hell are you? <laughs> I am above dirt. Nobody's shooting at me. And so it is a glorious, glorious day. That's Ladies, awesome. it is a, a privilege and an honor to be on your show, to be the first guest on your show. <laughs> yeah, well, you can hear us giggling. You're like, you know, ah, we're good. We're all set. Love That's it. Awesome. Well, thank you. No problem. So before we start, though, we got two rules. We only have two rules on the show. <clears throat> Usually it's just one. That's a lot. That's a lot. I know, of right? I mean, we can put them in a pop-up burger version for anybody who needs it. But so rule number one is that we don't talk politics on this show. Oh, thank goodness. Yes. And then rule number two, when we have a guest on, you can swear. <laughs> well, That's why damn. I couldn't wait to have you on, Dave. Well, hot damn. <laughs> Chira's all looking forward to it. <laughs> and I was, you know, I, I was the one who, I, on, on TNQP, I was the one who didn't swear the most. You know that, right? That is very so, true. Yeah, so you got a good shot at having a, a semi-clean show. Right. It will be ticked on explicit for sure this time. Right, right. But it's all good, right? Oh, my gosh. So Chira is tasked with a very important question <clears throat> about the title of our show. All right. Yes. So, you know, our show is set up like a joke. We are not jokes, okay, contrary <laughs> to how we sound sometimes. But, okay, Dave, we need you to finish the tagline. So yep. a PR lady and an HR lady walk into the bar. Bop, bop, bop. That's your cue for yep. our punchline. What is uh, it? <laughs> a, a PR lady and an HR lady walk into a bar. One sits down and tries to sell you uh, a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. Right? Like the other ones are so much easier, like a Navy SEAL, a priest, and a gay guy walking to a bar. You know, those are those okay, are so, so much finish easier. that one. I want to hear this is a family show. Yeah, that's right. Kids understand swearing, they don't understand grown up concepts. Right? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Yeah, well. So says the one who doesn't have any children, right? Right. That's so funny. All right. So we're going to do something fun. Um, you have been, well, you were on uh, Team Never Quit podcast for, was it three years or three and a half years? Three and a half years about, yeah. Three and a half years. So you guys used to do something called the Mon the. Mad Minute. Mad Minute, baby. Oh, oh, yeah. That would run anywhere between 12 to 15 minutes. <laughs> it seemed like one minute the whole time. I don't so, know. 
we all, I see all of us have been around enough explosives to where I think our space-time continuum is a little shot out. I mean, so nothing. It, it seemed like a minute. Yeah. So we're going to do something a little fun, and it's, it's not a mad minute, but it's, to, it's designed to just kind of have a blast and really kind of get a chance to know, see if we know you, even though we've never met. Chira's never met you. I've never met you. This really has been at length our first time actually having any conversation whatsoever. So we're going to have a little bit of fun with this based off of what we think we might know. How's that sound? Yeah, I can't wait for this. This is going to be interesting. (laughs) So, so Chira, would you like to kick off your first question? I I do. And you know what? I kind of rewrote some of the questions you asked because Dave should know this. Okay, Dave. Going back to your medic days, IV or IO? Oh, man. <laughs> That's a tough one. It depends on, on what the situation is, right? If they're, if they're hypovolemic, then I, I've got I've to jam something in their chest, right? Uh, right in their, their, their breastplate. Uh, if they're, uh, let's see, if they're dehydrated from a late night of drinking, uh, I'd probably do the breastplate again, uh, <laughs> on the battlefield. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think an IV is always the, the least invasive way you, you could apply fluids. Although if there's a lot of transport required, then IO is the way to go because having that thing anchored into a bone and it, it's not going to get ripped out a lot during the, the unfortunate, uh um brutality <laughs> of transporting a casualty oh god. oh god i'm sure glad i didn't ask about crike or chest ah! <laughs> i would have told you about 25 stories about a pig and a goat <laughs> <laughs> that's your warm-up okay yeah. go ahead Brent. Now, now that we can see dave like literally like twitching um <laughs> This will, this will be a little bit lighter. Are you ready? ready? Black Sabbath or Three Doors Down? Black Sabbath all the way, all the <laughs> way. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a retro guy. You know, I've, I'm a child of the 70s, so Three Doors Down, I don't know what that would make me, but uh, it certainly <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't rain with uh, the, the, the king, Mr. Ozzy Osbourne himself. So. Very cool. Okay. All right, your turn. Okay, I'm like, oh, I'm asking a million questions. Would you rather set foot on Mars or the moon? Wow, that's this is a great question because my fiance and I just recently got into, there's a Netflix special out there uh, with uh, about a gentleman named Bob Lazar. Uh, he lived here, where he lived here. Did he really? Yeah, Bob, because I'm in Nevada. So right. I'm not too far from dreamland. Yeah, so, you know, I watched this. First, it caught me when I was watching Joe Rogan's podcast with him on it. And I was like, wait, what What did he just say? And then I went and watched this, this you know, incredible doc, documentary about him, which re- legitimately, you know, he has, he believes that he worked on a UFO for seven months. And at, what is it? S, S54 or S4. whatever it was. And S4. Yep. And talks about seeing nine different flying saucers and all that. So the, although the moon is is pretty i mean super cool don't get me wrong we've had i've I've interviewed a bunch of astronauts but uh 
stepping on Mars. Now, now that now we're talking. <laughs> That's definitely like legit right there. Well, See, just real quick, if you liked Bob Lazar's story, look into the story of astrophysicist David Adair. Pretty damn fascinating. So I think you and your fiance might enjoy that discussion too. <clears throat> so my guess was going to be Mars. I would have figured if you if you yeah. went to the moon, my guess was that you went to that you were going to do Mars. But if you went to the moon, it probably would to have recorded new footage <laughs> <laughs> of the moon landing. <laughs> oh god, no! I want to see the secret uh, alien base that's on the backside of the moon. Everybody keeps talking about. <laughs> Just fascinated with this alien concept. <laughs> I think that's pretty rad. There you go. Tyra, Tyra, which one did you guess? Mars or Moon? Uh, I figured Mars, but you know what? Now that you said alien, you said one of my favorite words. <laughs> so, yeah. Aliens or not? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we got to believe there's some aliens out there for sure. Cool. All right. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Brent. We we tend to step on each other a little. <laughs> it, oh my God! I, I, if I did all I could to to not let Marcus get a word in edgewise. <laughs> nice. She was on the other foot today. Go ahead. The, <laughs> Thank you. The, the the wizard would have to hold up a sign and be like, "Be quiet now." And I'd be like, "Okay, <laughs> check, Roger." All right. So here's another question for you. <clears throat> For now, team guys go to a lot of countries. They go to a lot of countries, and it will never be disclosed as to which ones. But if you could go back and Chira, which I want you to figure out which one, and then then you can answer, Dave. Would you rather go to China or Greece for fun? So I'm going to say Greece. Chira, what do you think? Uh, <clears throat> well, you may have been to both places. Well, China for fun. China. Well, I've. I've been to China uh, and ran the Great Wall of Marathon there, um, and that was certainly no fun whatsoever. <laughs> so uh, I, I have not been to Greece, and if I were to go, I would definitely not run a marathon, that's for <laughs> sure. So I'm going to have to, by deductive reasoning, have to go with Greece as as the, <laughs> the, the top pick for fun over China. Nice. Well, I will tell you, I've been to China. I've been to the Great Wall, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's a heck of a lot skinnier than you think it would be. Oh, but yeah. it, it's not an easy thing to traverse at all. And when I was at China, the physicians that we were with um, were always trying to get us to eat different foods. I mean, when we say different foods, it's like they kill something, they eat the whole animal from yeah. stem to stern, right? Yeah. And so they would try and con me into eating things and say, oh, it'll make you beautiful. And it just, you know, they want to smoke your tobacco. It's made from the side of a tree. And, oh, it'll make you beautiful. So that was my first experience with Rocky Mountain Oysters over at the, uh, <laughs> the wall. Oof. Wow. Oof. So I'm with you. I, I would choose Greece. <laughs> I'll tell you what, over in the Asian uh, uh, continent, they have the most interesting food. I'll give them that by far, right? I mean, just, just I mean, the stuff that they would drop down on plates, you know, uh, I definitely had to take a step back and go, hmm, is this going to be worth it? But, yeah. you know, after, after a few years in the team, she developed a pretty good goat gut. So you have a little bit of a sense of adventure. In you. I've heard those stories. Mm -hmm. uh, that's so funny. 
All right, lady girl. Okay. Um, William Blake or Elizabeth Barrett Browning? Hmm, that's that's tough. Man, it's been a long time since I've read either one. Um, I just, I guess, I'd go with William Blake, right? He wrote that beautiful poem about winter, didn't he? That was that was him, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd have to go with William Blake. He's written a couple pretty poems. <laughs> yeah, one or two. <laughs> exactly. They still persist. Along that kind of genre, I mean, because you minored in poetry, right? I did. I did. I, 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 among other things, I, I, I think I had about five different minors when I was at Penn State from English lit to poetry, uh, art history, um, sociology, and psychology. So, yeah. yeah. So you- always like people no i could tell through your post on social and that yeah obviously you have some literature background and communicative so you're probably a gemini too that's just an aside no no i'm a leo i'm a leo <gasps> no yeah, when's your birthday july 24th right on the cusp there i'm right on your heels yeah I, my birthday falls on a very heavy day in the community, and it's on the 6th. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. that is a big day. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Jeez. Well, well, it's also a good day to celebrate their memories, too. And Absolutely. Your- yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. Every every birthday, and that happened on my 40th birthday. Every birthday, I go out and I do something to that reminds me that I'm alive. Yeah, amen. That's what they would all want, for yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Sure. On to something fun. All right, so you ready, Chira? Yeah, your turn. Right. So, next question. Chira, do you think which historical moment Dave would like to have been a part of? That if he could go back in time. You ready? Oh, this is going to be good. The surrender of the Japanese on the deck of the USS Missouri or have backstage passes at the fall of the Berlin Wall celebration next to David Hasselhoff singing in concert. Well, that's an epic challenge right there. Well, I mean, Gosh, it's one, is, one, one is signaling the, the, the end to the, the most tragic event in human history. And and the other is seeing David Hasselhoff. So <laughs> I don't know the, the weight of those two things are it's literally tearing me apart right now as as I try and reflect upon this. Um, uh, I, I'm going to have to go uh, un, you know, it's by, it's by a slight edge. I'm going to have to go with the, the, the Japanese surrender. <laughs> well, if you were there, you would have seen his flashing jacket too. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Oh, slight lit jacket. All right, girlfriend, your shot. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. I picked, I picked the Japanese. Sorry. Even though it was my question, I picked the Japanese. What yeah. did you pick? Who? Me? Hey, you. No, I, I was being glib when I said Hasselhoff. Who wouldn't pick the Japanese? Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a big day. That's a big that's a big moment. Yeah. Just a little. Well, and my dad, well, he wasn't in Japan, but in World War II, he was in China. So wow. you pretty darn close. <clears throat> and he's still around at a cranky ninety one. We call him Krusty. Krusty <laughs> Chira. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Morse code or interpretive dance, David. Interpretive dance all day long. That's easy. Morse code is boring. 
Can you imagine, like, if that's how we, like, if that's how we actually said hello to each other? We just like get some crazy stuff and you know, putting it out, and and everybody had their own beautiful, unique hello. And it was all depend upon your mood, right? On on how much how much you were gonna get into it, right? And then definitely your cultural background. You could throw that, you know. I throw a little Highland Scottish dancing in there. Oh, are you Scottish? Yeah, Rutherford. Well, I well, my mom was from Scotland, so really? Clansman, darling. Ah, uh, the fellow Clansman. Oh, oh. so okay, Miss Brenda. You <laughs> can roll your R's. That's it. Like you're like it's like the easiest uh, accent to imitate. You just gotta roll your R's excessively long. R. <laughs> That's it. I'm Scottish. How are you doing? Really <laughs> am. All right. So last one. You ready? Tyra, left side of the plane or right side of the airplane? Ooh. Um, there's a reason behind this. <clears throat> oh, damn. Left. Left? I'm going yeah. with right. <laughs> Jeez, I fly so much. I'm just happy if I get a seat. <laughs> Honestly. I'm just happy I, I have a seat. I'm lucky if it's an aisle seat. And then I'm super lucky if, like, if, you know, my platinum points hit on something and I actually get a first-class ticket. Yeah, that's that's it. <laughs> and then it just doesn't matter, right? You can be on the, on the, on the, on the, the, in the aisle. You can be on the left, the right. You can be up against a bulkhead. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> So I was guessing the right side of the plane as a preference. Well, tell me why. What? What? Tell me the basis of the question. Because team guys always have a methodology of where they sit in a room. Interesting. Always. I, I get you. A, a yeah. plane is tough, though. It but, is. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I try my. I actually do try and get in a, an emerge in an exit row every time, mm -hmm. just so I can help with with you know that whole process because I don't have much confidence in. You know, like the the I don't know the dork who is sitting there who doesn't really understand when you ask, are are you ready, willing, and able to help in the event of an emergency? And they're like, huh? What'd you say, huh? <laughs> so I always tend to like to be in those spots. I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Is every time I go out and I have a meeting with a team guy or we talk about business something or other, I always have to sit with my back to the door. Yeah, I mean, that's a given, yeah. right? But it's amazing how they position themselves in the room or when we go to the movies in the theaters. I mean, it's it's interesting to just pick up on those set of things. And, and there's no even, like, <laughs> sometimes it's not even here. Brenda, you sit here. It's two hands on my arms and I'm getting moved. It's like, okay. Oh, yeah. Going yeah. Here. It's a little, a little bit a little bit odd. You, you, it's it's all about the that collective programming, right? Sure. How do you... You know, you allow it to to imprint in such a significant way, and then the problem is, is you can't shake it, right? All these little, you know, these these thousands of different pieces of of useless tactical information that we have stored, you know, you, you can't escape it, unfortunately, and and it it, it makes you a little paranoid, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know that stress inoculation <clears throat> because I mentioned that my dad was in World War II in Korea and he was also a cop in Los Angeles Sheriff's Office when he got out. So as a little kid, he always 
my nickname's Toots. Sit, you'd sit where you yeah. can see the door and pay attention. And I was attacked in high school and it was only my situational awareness that probably saved my life. So it may, it may seem insignificant, but at some point, hopefully, I mean, for you, Dave, it's different, but for the rest of us civilians, it comes back. So Dave, it looks like you spent eight years in Naval Special Warfare. And when I'm looking at your bio, it said as a SEAL student, is that kind of uh, a civilian phrase for buds and, and the beginning? Yeah it's, yeah, it's for them to understand, you know, the because, you know, my buds career was 15 months. So, you know, it, it gives me an opportunity to to when they, everybody always wants to talk about buds and what it meant to be a student and going through, they, they, most people, their, their perception of, of what the job entails is so limited, but yet everybody's seen the discovery, you know, channel class 234. And so, you know, I, I, I write that into it. So it fits that description, that description. Okay. And then you, it also says in your bio that you were a combat paramedic. You operated in both the Middle East and South Asia, and you served as an instructor. So for eight years, you served in the NSW community, and you retired in 2003, <clears throat> excuse me, where then you opened your motivational training concepts titled Team Frog Logic. And so my questions to you really relate to HR and PR and kind of what you do under Team Frog Logic and and it looks like one of your goals was a hundred or ten million peeps in ten years time. You're gonna touch them with this message and it it's more than a message, it's like an initiative, a campaign. What what was the genesis? I mean, did you just have one of those moments and you went, hey, I'm gonna start this company because it's kind of tough to get out of the operational community and you know, buy toilet paper at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, uh, you know, when I first got out um, in the summer of 03, my main focus was I, I got my real estate license. Uh, my mom was a real successful realtor in Boca Raton and we were going to join forces and, you know, I was going to try and help her with modernize her marketing and the whole thing. And, help her use the internet a lot better. And, and within the first, you know, month of, of trying to be a realtor, I, it was just such a, a, not a good fit for me. Um, you know, I was struggling with the transition pretty substantially. Um, I had, I was engaged at the time and, you know, after a month with my mom, <clears throat> that didn't last. And then I switched and I got hired by a domestic security firm, um, out of Michigan, uh, and we like would sell camera systems to strip malls and guard work and stuff like that. And but it was also on the pretense that I would be able to start uh, a little subcontracting company to go after some of the contracts downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan that were you know big time contracts. Although my employer kind of misled me and to believe that after writing my very first 36 page. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, business plan, uh, which was a delight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like waxing your legs for the first time. Literally, yeah. it was, I, I got to say it was, it was miserable to do, but it was one of the greatest educations I've ever did because it was the first time 
you know, I ever thought about business in its totality and what what you need to uh, assess, right? From market evaluations to marketing to hiring to you know insurance and you know how do you insure you know you know six team guys in a foreign country whether <laughs> whether whether using uh foreign you know foreign purchase weapons you know i you know like lloyd's of london didn't even want to touch that yeah, i was gonna say or more or less who would want to yeah, insure yeah, that right exactly and, and, and then you're talking about government contracting period because that's a whole different beast to learn thankfully they had done a bunch of domestic contracts and stuff so i had guidance there Mm -hmm. um and then you know i i you know did this thing i had two guys that come out and help you know start running it and they just said listen this is not what we do it's too dangerous we don't want to go overseas so after that i kind of caved in and then i i was really struggling emotionally and, and mentally at that time i my engagement was breaking up and she didn't want anything to do with, you know, what, you know, dealing with an ex Navy SEAL who is struggling and I don't blame her. And, and, and so then I got a kind of a call out of the blue from a buddy I'd gone through training with a guy was in my first platoon with, and he's like, Hey man, you know, let's, uh, I got a job, you, me, maritime interdiction program overseas. Are you in or you out? And I was like, I'm in, uh, eight days later I was in Azerbaijan. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, and so that initiated about a uh, almost two year cycle with Blackwater. Uh, and it was in working for Blackwater. I was on my uh, a trip to Afghanistan, my second trip to Afghanistan. And uh, I just got hit like a ton of bricks that um, I didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't, a, I, it, I think it was some de- definitely divine intervention. I think it was God playing a big role. Um, but I realized that I wasn't going to be able to make a long-term difference in anybody's life by holding a gun. And and that was kind of a, this gigantic wake up call for me that, you know, this massive investment I had made in terms of developing a skill set isn't, isn't the type of skill set that has, uh, uh, long-term benefits for human beings, (laughs) whether you're, the, the the holder of the gun or you're on the receiving end of the, the recipient gun. of the love yeah, <laughs> forthcoming of, or as we like to call it in the teams and special operations delivering the hate right which is exactly <laughs> what it does and, you know so I, I i fortunately on this trip i was uh working with the counter drug uh team we had done a hit up in the northern afghanistan and mazar shari and it was you know pretty benign nothing went down and but it was in that moment that i you know just saw these afghan kids and in an instant was uh immediately inspired to change my life in order to assist children uh to give them whatever it is they needed and i at that time i'd done very little child psychology a little bf skinner and stuff in college but nothing in depth at all and I was like, that's it. I'm going to figure out how to help kids. And initially it was going to be, I wanted to help kids in war-torn environments. Um, and so I was going to look at, I looked at Doctors Without Borders, USAID, Red Cross, all this. And just team guys and nonprofits don't really jive well. <laughs> and so um, uh, we're, we're great. We're great 
you know, we're great as poster children to raise money. So uh, I quickly realized that wasn't going to be it. And and after that deployment, I came home and my research just led me into the the really burgeoning needs that our kids were facing in America. And that's out of that uh, Frog Logic was born. Uh, and that was uh, the winter of 05. Um, that spring, 06, uh, I started talking. I, I did. I think I did my first kids program uh, in April. I worked with um, a YMCA locally and did a kids program. And then I worked with some foster care kids. I did a whole month program with them. That was fun. And, and then I wrote my first book, which was a children's book on developing self-confidence. And, and that was it. And Frog Logic was born. Um, never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I'd, uh, I'd, I'd work with over 50 Fortune 100 companies. I never imagined I would uh, have you know one of the biggest pod show, podcasts in the world. I never imagined uh, I would be the motivational performance coach for the Boston Red Sox, you know, and win a World Series. So, um, it but it all stemmed from just uh, the innate, or I shouldn't say innate. Yeah, I guess it's innate. I was, I was a pretty, I guess a, a lifetime of servitude is innate, I guess. Um, yeah. it all stemmed from that, that I wanted to keep serving, but I didn't want to do it in a way, um, that, uh, uh, intimidation or fear it's, it, there's that the, the servitude is based in a, a fear based model. And so that's what, that's how frog logic was started. So, yeah, I love it. So I have a quick question. So what do you think your gift was that allowed all of this, these opportunities to come your way? I mean, you're you're doing, you know, you're you're writing and talking about self-confident things that, you know, you speak of. But what do you think that root gift is? So I believe that the that God, I was blessed with two big gifts as a as a person. One, my artistic ability. I've always just been able to draw and I always just have seen things in, in a very artistic way. I, you know, I guess that part of my brain is, is, is either highly developed or overdeveloped or whatever you want to say. Definitely not my mathematical prowess, you know, having failed algebra like 10 times, uh, you know, my 11 year old. Oh my God. My 11 year old already knows more math than I do. Um, Thank God for QuickBooks, right? And and so I I I for that was it. And then the the second one, I think um, I always had this core ability to motivate. Um, I always was the guy, whether I was you know the captain of my football teams or student body vice president, and Oh, you know, I always just had that sense of um, uh, I, I in those moments where somebody needs a boost, I was always a person that was able to provide that. Uh, and actually, it saved my career, you know, multiple times in the teams. Uh, the most significant one was uh, my second um, medical role. Uh, I got, you know, my first one was my ITBs were real bad in 205. That rolled me out of 205. I rolled into 206. I overtrained and developed stress fractures and they were going to boot me. I got actually medical, medically dropped by the physician. Oh, wow. And it was the base training officer who went over to PTRR, which is the 
phase before you start first phase, second phase, third. And the guy, he asked the the Warren over there, uh, his name was Warren Officer Reworts, who was a plank owner at Dev Group, um, just a, a legend in the teams. He was this ominous man and this presence. And But he, and I never thought he acknowledged or even knew I existed. Um, but apparently what he told the BTO was that if, you know, if Rutherford can stay healthy, he's a real team player. Um, and, and I think it was because like when guys would fall back on soft sand conditioning runs, I drop back with them and try and push them through or, you know, guys were struggling to get their stuff ready cause they're brand new. And, you know, I'd been there a little, I, I'd help. And I just kind of always had that, uh, that character trait of, of a, a natural motivator. And, and so it made sense for me um, to kind of hopefully combine those two things uh, with frog logic. So to inspire people through uh, a creative, a uh, little bit different uh, approach to this whole uh, self-help racket that's out there. <laughs> <laughs> Are you an anomaly in terms of both the teams and how you've been able to kind of transition from uh, the silent operator in many ways to a civilian role that plays a, a really magnanimous role in uh, sounds like with kids, but you're doing a lot in the financial services, obviously yeah. the fortune one hundreds are, I mean, and let's talk about really, I have so many questions. I, I just think your answer was so awesome. This perception that people have, of what especially naval special warfare is and then how do you apply kind of that mystique in the business realm and show who you really are as a human is there a disconnect for you like this is the persona but this is the reality of a a team guy in the business world and certainly for team frog logic uh, that's those are those are great questions um uh, i'll start at the beginning i i think uh, team guys are much more eclectic than other groups. And don't get me wrong, I have some, you know, Green Beret friends like Evan Hafer at Black Rifle Coffee, uh, a buddy of mine, Brad Christian, who runs the Cipher Brief, um, who are some brilliant, fantastically creative people. Um, but I, I think in the teams, we get, you know, we get all types. And, you know, some really unique people. Uh, so I don't think I'm, um, I'm an anomaly in the teams whatsoever. I mean, I remember there's one guy uh, uh, who was in uh, 206 and then 207, uh, graduated 207, grew up in a circus. And yeah, and that's what we called him circus. And his dad, like, and we're like, and we, it was so funny, like, you know, the instructors would be like, well, what do you, what did you do? And, you know, what did you do? And, and he goes, well, I was a lawn tamer. I was, I did trapeze. I, I, I took tickets. I cleaned up elephant poop, you know, he, he did it all. Cause it was this family. And so, you know, and then there were guys that came off wall street and had, you know, were making quarter million dollars a year, but they had this calling, this urge to go, I think it's really initially to prove yourself. Um, and then it morphs much more into something in a very complicated, much deeper. 
Um, for me, uh, it when I first got out, I, I could not separate. Uh, and I tried in every, both in real estate, doing the domestic security at Blackwater, even for the first several, many years of Frog Logic. It wasn't until 2012 that I actually began to recognize that uh, this SEAL mentality, although it's very enticing, it opens doors, but it is not very applicable to the regular civilian work world. Uh, it just doesn't jive well. Um, and and, the, and it's, it's, not, it's not that it's not efficient, and it's not that the systems that we have in place, our SOPs, our tactics, techniques, and procedures, that can't be morphed and applied in a civilian environment. It's just the manner with which we do it, right? Mm -hmm. From the first minute we start to um, allow the imprinting process to happen, uh, it's done in a very warped way for us. So time immediately becomes warped or skewed. Um, so everything we have to do, you're already out of time. So this urgency that that's imposed upon us based on your timed and everything, you know, you have two mile ocean swims, uh, O courses, um, you just, just, uh, listen, all right, ladies, you've got two minutes to the chow hall, right? It's a mile and a half to the chow hall. All right. And they're like, and if you don't make it in two minutes, we're going to beat you down once you get to the combat training thing. So you've already failed because <laughs> it's a, it's a physical impossibility to move 125 guys shuffling across the silver strand <laughs> to the chow hall, 1.23 miles away, whatever it is in two minutes. That's what I think is the greatest asset that organizations can have is is there in people who work together is be, to be patient with one another. We, we are simply not patient people. Yeah, some, something that I've seen with the work that I've done in the community that it kind of, the, the guys fall into one of three kind of classifications. You've got some guys that are they're just ready to get out and never have anything to do with the government again. They just want a job. They want normalcy in their life. And I think they're mentally primed to actually take that path and deal with what comes with that. Yeah. Then you, yeah. Then you've got guys that they're like, yeah, I still love doing what I do as a team guy, even though I'm no longer going to be one. And then they, they keep on going down the, you know, the path of going back into contracting and, and going back in country and, and doing what they're trained to do. Or they get involved with contracts that continue to train guys to do what they do. Right. Then there's the, then there's the last hat, then there's the last third of it. And that's, I'm, I'm, I really, I don't, I feel like a square peg in a round hole trying to look for a job. I really want to do my own thing. And that's the course that they take. So it's that entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, and then that continuation of still wanting to be doing what they've, that they're trained to do and what they love passionately. And it's the entrepreneurs are the ones that really make, I think everybody makes a shift in their own manner, but they make a much different shift and their course will look different than anybody else's. Yeah. That's a brilliant way to dissect it, by the way. That's really, that's, that's a, one of the best ways I've ever heard, for sure. Um, you know, when I Thank first you. got out, uh, and then Chiro, to, 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 to continue on, you know, the, the um, you know, you carry this, this, you know, this insignia of the trident with you. And we're, we're 
we're taught to to earn it every day, so to speak. But when when you're earning it in where the rules aren't very set in stone and the rules are radically different than how you had to earn it before, it's a struggle. Um, and and I and back when I got out, man, that silent professional thing was still very much intact. Um, you Peter know, Four. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and the only one kind of at the time that I was doing it really was the guy named Admiral Smith was out on the speaking circuit. Um, definitely Dick Marcinko, uh, had done more for our community than anybody by writing the rogue warrior books. I mean, and you know, it's, and what he had done just, you know, in terms of being in the limelight and then that was it really. And, and so when I did it, I, I, I figured, all right, I'm going to, at least I'm starting with kids. So I'm going to get kind of a pass on it. And then my logo, you know, I didn't have a trident in the logo at all and wanted to create my own kind of look and feel. And, and so I was hyper aware and nervous of it. And it was, in, in fact, only within the last couple of years have I relieved myself of any deep rooted sense of, of guilt or worry or shame that I'm proselytizing the trident in any, in, in, in any way that might be malfeasant to the community. And so, and it's because now, and, and, you know, and I remember I had a person, uh, it was a, like one of my first, uh, business, my, my first corporate speaking gigs and, uh, you know, they were like, Hey man, you, you really need to utilize your trident a lot more to sell what you're, what you're talking about here. And I was like, well, you know, and he goes, listen, if, if you were to go to Harvard and go to Harvard and get a Harvard MBA, what's the first thing you're going to tell everybody in your interview process? Hey man, I went to Harvard. I've got a Harvard MBA. And so I started to learn how to do that. Now, I definitely had some setbacks when I went to work for the CIA. <laughs> Did you have an HR moment? <laughs> I had a big HR moment. Was you an HR moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was an HR moment. And so, uh, you know, it, it it was funny. It was like five years after my last deployment with them. I finally talked to my buddy who was still there and was real high up. And I'm like, hey, man, do you think it'd be cool if I – if I like drop that in there too, that I, you know, I taught CIA case officers and was deployed and, and he's like, yeah, man, five years is good as, but just don't talk any details about it. Right. And I was like, all right. And thankfully like a bunch of other guys had already come out and talked about what, you know, 13 hours had come out uh, and that really exposed uh, the program that I was a part of. And so uh, with Oz and Tig and, and Tonto all out in the media limelight, it, it, it made it a little bit easier to, to, to do. But, you know, I think it's a hard thing for guys, uh, for anybody to, who, who get rooted in these heavy identities, right? And these, these things that are much more than just uh, a job title, these things that you've altered your existence for, um, to then all of a sudden say, all right, I'm totally cool uh, selling insurance, right? That like, that's, that's going to give me the same sense of value, the same sense of ego, right? The same sense, all these things mm-hmm. that we, we, we take 
you know, kind of to the ultimate extremes, literally and figuratively, um, to to then you know suppress all that and feel like and figure out how to fit in at, at whatever stage you are in, in that in that really brilliantly three described places. You just you, you're you know, and and I think the more institutionalized you are, I mean, I mean, I have friends now that you know got got out at one out of twenty seven. He's 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 a nightmare. I uh, got one out. My, in fact, one of the biggest tragedies ever was my my biggest mentor in the teams um, got out uh, right, like right, but right when Iraq kicked off, and so he never got to. He got timed out as a senior chief, and he never got. So he went chasing contracting, and then he got sick and injured, and then he got old, and and before you know it, uh, his his. Uh, he, his alcoholism uh, mm. got him and he drank himself to death after four years. And so, you know, you, I've seen this, this challenge for us in so many different ways. Um, and I think the, the individual that you were talking about, Brenda, the person that, that has the real passion for creativity and to figure out how to, how to, slowly separate themselves but to do it in a place where they can uh, mimic some of the functional character traits not the emotional ones can mimic the the functionality the operational mindset into their own new businesses or co-businesses those are those are the people that i've seen have had the most success yeah, I mean, everybody goes through what's called the dynamic change shift. That's, you know, farming, storming, norming, and performing. We all go through it. And anytime something comes into our worlds, the dynamic of being a human being definitely exists. And, and what I see, yeah, right? And what I see all the time in doing the work that I do in the community, and I see it in HR, Chira, I'm sure she sees it on her end with any type of organizational change and structure, but specifically in the with the teams is that, one, when there's transition, there's not only transition with just the individual, there's transition with the families because the wives have been waiting for a long time to get their husbands back. We got one team guy that constantly re- refers to, I have to let go of Uncle Sam's whoopee yeah. because there's a check involved, there's the community, there's the brotherhood, there's the you know, I've got this, I got this down in life, you know, the regularity. Yep. I mean, it comes with a share of headaches, right? I got this. Yeah, but, the bombs, the bullets, the deaths. Right. Yeah, exactly. that stuff. We're on it, but you know, it's it's the PT, it's the you know the dynamic dynamics that happens in the command, you know, all of that stuff. But then they get out, and it literally is cutting an umbilical cord, and you no longer are part of that. So then you're reflecting on all this time that you spent doing what you're doing, and it's a new identity that, in some ways, you were ready for, but you're it's so imprinted in on you that that's the change that has to be made. Yeah. You're also, your your op-tempo just in life is different. You you know, they're, you know, a team guy's 100% is our 70 to 75 at best. So to ask a team guy to step down just to be in a normal cadence with the rest of life to go from 100 to 70, 75 is very depressing. It's yeah. like, let's do it. Come on, let's get it done. Let's get it done now. And now you've got the wives because to fill that, guys are going out and they're being ambitious, which is what they should be because that's how they are. But then the families are like, okay, but you're out now and we really want you here present with us. It's tough, you know, and I, 
you know, I think my circumstance when once I got married and then I, I had a child, you know, I was working for the agency and, and then I, I started deploying. And for me, it was this profound sense of guilt that, you know, drew me back in, you know, because here all my friends are still working, they're still deploying and I punched out early. Uh, so on a personal note, you know, I always felt this tremendous sense of guilt that I had left the teams too early. And, you know, I didn't think Iraq was going to turn into what it was. And, you know, and uh, I'd already seen the politics of Afghanistan. So I was like, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm getting out of here. I'm sick of the bureaucracy. I'm sick of the bull and, and just, you know, wasn't and punched out. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, really, really had, um, the opportunity. Um, I, I'm, I'm blessed because I've had a long period of time to grow into it uh, and a lot of great support. And I think that's a, a real uh, a real need. Now, thankfully, there's a lot of programs out there that, you know, like the stuff you're doing that that have a positive impact. But with me back then, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. And so thankfully, I had some, you know, real great support from my, my parents and and, and some friends. So it worked out. So when you're out there in the business world, what is one of the biggest or the common misconceptions about the industry that you come from and certainly your skill set as it applies to Team Frog Logic in helping organizations define both their HR operational efficiencies and building their brand and how they want to be perceived out in the public? Good question. I, I think every every company uh, struggles with culture. That's the number one thing that I mm-hmm. see uh, around the, the country. And whether it's a uh, you know a, a mega firm like Wells Fargo, who's just been you know they've been on their heels and actually on their butts you know since the whole big scandal happened with the 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 the, the checking uh, situation for them and they're. Their, their senior leadership is not doing a great job at rebranding. And so they're still struggling quite a bit. And um, so culture is, is the most significant. The challenge for us, though, as team guys is, you know, when people come to me and they go, all right, uh, I want to turn my sales team into the Navy SEALs of what X industry, right? And I'm, and they're like, can you help us do that? And I'm like, sure, go get me a, you know, a, a, an IBS rubber boat, put it in your break room, fill it with ice water. And anytime anybody screws up, go, go make them hit the hit the boat and fill it with ice water, right? And and you know, I literally, you know, watch the HR people like cringe convulse. when I say that. And convulse. <laughs> literally convulse is the appropriate term, right? And 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 I actually, when I first started doing corporate stuff, I I was so naive to believe that you that that would work um and that oh why not why can't we establish a similar hierarchy and a similar uh uh cause and effect or or consequence structure that we have in in the military in this civil civilian organization and i was horrible and i was and a lot of times i'd have People go, you know, that's great, but it, it doesn't work here. And I'm like, wait, what do you mean? Just beat them down, you know? Tell them you're going to dock them half their pay. And, you know, all, and they're like, no, it's not the way it works, you idiot. And I, so it took me a long time to figure out that uh, it doesn't work. Um, the, 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 the components that 
um, that do work are a greater sense of peer evaluation, which we we have at, at one of the highest uh, levels, right? You know, whether you're a new guy or you're a guy with, you know, eight platoons, uh, you're gonna, if you're not doing it correctly, uh, you have a whole platoon, a whole command that's around to help you figure out how to do it. Now, the manner by which, which <laughs> we do it in the SEAL teams doesn't work, but the concept is, is similar. And I think we've really gotten away from that in many businesses, right? The, the line of communication in terms of helping one another or OJT on the job training, uh, you know, those are really because every company is running lean now, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. they're 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 expanding, but they're not expanding in key strategic places. They're just they're just saying, hey, I need you to do this and this, too. Right. Yeah. You they kind of are- figured that out when the market crashed and. Yeah. It's like, hey, we can pile more work on top of people and, and not compensate them. And, and although there's some companies that have gotten away from that, but yeah, it's still out there. It's, it's, it's very pervasive. And, and so as a result, you know, I think people are so taxed uh, and, and companies have really moved away from these very baseline uh, concepts, you know, week, morning, Monday morning briefs, Friday afternoon debriefs. Uh, actually keeping good records of, of, of performance uh, um, assistance, right? If, if somebody, uh, you like a senior manager comes in to help a junior manager to track that and know how often that's happening. So you can gauge this, this uh, whether or not the core corporate culture of the organization is being disseminated and trained on a continual basis. Uh, so you're bringing up a really great point. And Chira, this is this is where our worlds now can, amongst the three of us, uh, the three musketeers here, where our words, worlds mesh. Because you, what you're talking about is perfect. Now, what's happening is the documentation process is going digital. Right. Right. Which digital only has, it's only as secure as a company makes it secure. But, and here's where, Chira would chime in and I would have to chime in is that people think that just because you can put something on digitally that oh we can put it on here and then we can put it on over here and then all of a sudden you've got you know these outside chat sessions that are going on that have nothing to that are part of the work but are not sponsored by the work and that creates problems because now it's it's you know open source information yeah. and then you've got you know, individuals that may not be documenting what they should on on the company-sponsored site. So when something gets figured out that something is now put out there, then I have to step in and we've got a disciplinary action that has to take place, even though we may have been very clear about it in our policies. And now we have to partner with our PR counterparts to figure out what's the correct messaging. Yeah. And, and messaging's everything. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you see, David, you know, social media is driving a lot of the conversations that was once propriety in terms of the executive suite or internally within the organization. Now, everybody with a smartphone or an iPad can propolicize, they can, you know, editorialize, even if it's anonymously. So it changes the perception of an agency, it changes its culture. How do you see social media's role in the development of a brand's reputation and its operational implications? Kind of like, you know, Brenda was just saying about HR, PR, 
and then operationally? I think it's uh, it's the trickiest uh, thing that organizations have ever had to deal with by mm-hmm. far because um, you know before uh, you know you disseminate in- information through this you know through the eye of the needle right everything is scrubbed everything is evaluated everything is put out well now you're hiring you know some 27 year old communications kid out of out of school because the, he built up his own or she built up their own social media file and they got a hundred thousand followers and a big YouTube channel or whatever so there are gurus now, uh, and then you, you, they're bringing them in because nobody that's over forty actually wants to do that for a company, right? <laughs> and 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 Amen. so and so you're you have this this young person uh, that really doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about it because most social media is pretty impulsive. Um, and you, you have a recipe for disaster for sure. Um, I think in certain, you know, it, it really depends on the industry and depends on the business, the size, the mess. Cause I've, I've seen social media just, just be abysmal for companies like big financial institutions that I've worked with their social media is, is, is treacherous. And then, you know, going to work for the mom and pop stuff. I went to work for one of the largest, uh, pig farming families in, in Idaho recently. And they've got this beautiful social media thing that they've built up. And, and it's one of the kids in the family has stepped in and, and has taken it over and they just gotta be, yeah, it's about oversight like it is with anything, Mm -hmm. but you know, to the point where, you know, you don't want to be stifling because you want it to be, because you can tell when a post has been crafted, you know, you can tell when somebody's you know, pined over the proper turn terminology for, you know, three weeks <laughs> versus somebody that, 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 you know, there's something cool happening. They post it and it makes their company look good, you know? So, so do you think there's an opportunity? I mean, for fossils like myself to integrate <laughs> social media? Well, no, because, you, know, you talked about that level of impulsivity. And I think that oftentimes comes with youth. We are all there at some point in time where we can benefit as, as you know, especially your work with financial organizations, they tend to be more staged, stayed and not dynamic to use social media and other communications methods for Intel so that they can respond appropriately to say, Hey, these are where we're kind of vulnerable. And these are opportunities for us to change and improve and be responsive and authentic? Or do you think that older, more established organizations are resistant to using that intel, basically, to be better and to serve their constituencies in a more robust way? Well, so first off, you know, when you're when you're disseminating, right, from a traditional marketing sense, right, uh, you, you, you've got a concept, you've got a service, you've got a product. And, and the idea is to get it in front of people's faces in enough places where you can convert them, right? In particular through the internet now. Um, but with social media, the whole, the whole premise of it is, is interaction. And you, you know, and that's what you, you can't do. Can't, you know, the human dynamic, the human condition is, uh, is really, you know, 
is really the the puzzle that we all have to dissect when it comes to our businesses, right? And so part of social media is the is the interaction. You know, to someone posts a comment to be able to immediately get back on there and say, hey, thank you so much for the wonderful words you said about my daily dose of frog logic today. I really appreciate it. Or somebody puts on there, one guy the other day on my post uh, said, this really hit home today. Thank you. Uh, it's been three years on this day since I buried my daughter and this really made an impact. Mm-hmm. So if I just do a, a heart like on Instagram instead of writing, my God, I, my condolences. I'm so sorry for your loss. Uh, my prayers and thoughts are with you and her. Please, you know, please stay in the fight. That's a big difference, right? And and so I think what you have in this social media di- dilemma for people is, is how do you you know, what are the boundaries of that interaction? And most companies aren't driving interaction. That's not what they're doing. Um, you know, and every now and then you see, you know, you see uh, uh, like some, you know, interesting uh, response that, you know, maybe one corporation posts something and then another one comes in and says, yeah, but we could do this. Or, uh, you know, and those those cool little one-ups they, they do. Sni- they snipe on each other's they posts. They snipe each other. Yeah. And, and, and listen, those are the things that get posted on, on the online sites, right? Those are the things that get dropped on to, you know, NPR or Breitbart or CNN or, or Drudge or Huffington, you know. And, and so I think what, what organizations need to do better is, is, is really, you know, you know, understand their messaging and then give themselves a, a, a great uh, left and right lateral limit uh, of what this 28-year-old social media hire, new hire, <laughs> can has, can do for you. So, fresh perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we all need, right? We all need that that ongoing uh, objective perspective for us, and and especially now with you know the millennials have 75 million uh, uh, people, right? They're going to be the largest purchasing generation in human history. Uh, and I'll tell you what, um, to, to try and hit them with a, a traditional marketing platform or HR issues, no. it, you're, you're talking Swahili. Yeah. Yes, you are. I mean, just it's a you know, and it's interesting that you brought up the generational aspect because generation, I mean, you've got an exiting boomer, right? You got exiting boomers generation. You've got uh, X, which is predominantly us. Chira, you might be on on the border of the (laughs) definition, but I consider you an X because, you know, you're a fun wild child. But then you've got Y and then Z is coming into the plane. Z is actually more like X. But Y, statistically, there's actually two different groups of Y. There's, um, There's the the early adopters, quote unquote, yep. best, best way you can put it, the the founding Y generation. But then there's a back group of it. And the founding Y generation in and of itself is actually very different than the back generation. So when you're talking and you said messaging, you know, trying to bring somebody in for talent um, and you're talking to X, literally X, Y and Z now. It's it's a challenge. It is a real challenge because they'll perceive things differently. You know, why wants things electronically, which is fantastic. 
you know, X, you know, we still have, we still have this nervous tick when it comes up again, but then Z, they want the electronics, but they want it done faster. And matter of fact, I'm in the process of del uh, delivering a workshop on how do you attract talent, but the thing is, is that the generations want certain things, like one of the challenges in HR is that they want certain things. So if Generation Z will only spend X amount of time on a job application, well, you can't consolidate a job application and be effective because the employment laws and all the case law, that does that landscape doesn't change. No. It doesn't change quickly. So you still have to, so the big, you still have to be compliant. So, and you have to put best practices in place. You have to protect your company. And, and you know, HR is a very delicate balance of doing what's in the best interest of the employee. And in this case, that would be, you know, finding the right words and the messaging to attract talent, but balance it with what, how you have to do to protect the company. And, and it is a very delicate balance. And so trying to get Z to spend more than, you know, five minutes on an application right now is not a bad thing, but it certainly is the challenge of the day. Oh, there's there's immense challenges in every department yep. because you guys, that's just one it, and and that's why I led with the most the most challenging thing that all companies are facing is this cultural clash that's a, it happening, and it's not it's not happening as a result of you know uh, any any really fundamental destructive change in, in philosophy. It's just our educational system is, is spitting out a different mentality now. And so you're, you know, whereas a lot of companies, uh, if you're going to go work for a long running company, company that has some, you know, been in the game, you know, 15, 20, 25 years, you know, they have HR, comp they have HR divisions, they have marketing departments, they have training departments. And, but so many of these, you know, one of the funny statistics that cracks me up is that by the time a kid's 36 now, and I read this like two years ago, so it might've changed, but the, by the time a kid's 36, they've had six different careers mm -hmm. and not just six different jobs in the same industry, but six different careers. Um, so that, that has, that, that has a couple different glaring, um, uh, definitions that support it. I think one is uh, kids are being uh, um, instilled or inspired to, you know, follow your dream and and live out your passion and and all this stuff, uh, you know. And and they're like, oh, I want to start a gaming company and I want, oh, I want to do this, right? Or I I'm going to start a coffee company or a, a social me a social media marketing company and all this and. And yet, you know, there's none of the, no, no one's out there telling them about the 120 hour uh, weeks, right? <laughs> and nobody's telling them about eating ramen for your first six months because you don't have a dime because you're pouring every single dime you make from your other job that you're working 45 hours a week into this new job that you said. That, that's why I love Gary Vaynerchuk so much, right? Oh, yeah. I, I recently did this uh, event uh, with, uh, for on it, it was a design your life event, and Gary V was one of the speaker on the main night, and I spoke the second night with the two other folks, and and Aubrey Marcus, the CEO, you know, brings Gary in, and Gary cracks me up because Aubrey is is this on this grand journey of discovery, right, where these you know people are designing this one. I forget what he he was like. I work for this company. 
but you know, I've got a family and I don't want to, it's too risky. And he, and Gary V was like, well then don't do it. It's too risky. And you don't want to feel that. Then don't do it. Get it out of your head and move on. Go back to your job and start doing your job better. You know, see if you can move on. And it was just, it's hilarious because, <laughs> you know, and, and, the, and what's funny is that's why I, you know, I love my job because a company can hire me. I can come in, I can tell all their employees, Hey, suck it up. Stop being so <laughs> selfish and, and work harder together. Right. You know, the SEAL team way or whatever. And, and they, but, but you guys are the ones that have to deal with, you know, those, the, the real problems that uh, occur from that cultural clash that is just uh, uh, out of control right now. So where do you see it in five years time? Is it going to get better, worse, more distractible? I mean, everything goes in cycles. Well, if our economy can stave off this recession that most economists are talking about is coming um, I think it, it, that has a, a really uh, per, profound benefit to our workforce, because what you have now is you have for the first time in the last 15 years or so, this really uh, abundant need for, for work. Mm-hmm. And so companies can hire new people. They might not be talented. They might not be the very, you know, the right backgrounds. But they're hiring, and so people can get some job experience, right? And that's what we need. We need those. We need those. I don't even. I don't even know. It's what 1.4 trillion in college loan debt. That's right now. We need those kids to go have some three to five year work experience, um, and so that that way they can come back out and and prop up the next generation of businesses, right? Because if you even, if you go out and you look at a lot of even what's happening with uh, investment, right? And and whether it's angel investors or it's, you know, full-blown, you know, venture capital funding, you know, all the the, the venture capital is is shifted its approach to new businesses because there's been so many, you know, failures in these, you know, supposed wonder tech companies and stuff so just getting money is back difficult again Mm -hmm. um and 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 that is a big challenge so i i think as long as it's hard to find money um it'll drive people into a very abundant workforce and hopefully you know with guys like mike rowe out there um and some other people that are really pushing for the skilled trade job uh industries to come back i mean Micro, I'll tell you, there there are 650,000 jobs available in the trade world right now. Yep. Uh, but you have some kid that uh, wants to start the next great tech company, but they don't even know how to code, right? Yeah. When when you know they 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 actually have an aptitude for you know their hand, working with their hands. So if they went to became a plumber. They could get out and they could make start their own businesses and within you know three to five three to five years they're saying these kids could make a half a million million dollars a year in these industries so easily easily and you know what here's a real here's a real true test in my opinion and and I've got some thoughts on the uh, generation Y conversation too that here's here's a here's a real test of what one's grit is if we turn the power grid off for 24 hours <laughs> <laughs> just shut it down shut now it down you're for targeting my game yeah <laughs> Let's, let's, let's kick off the zombie apocalypse. 
all just... my ammo. I've got all my guns. Let's get this thing going. We're digging out the MREs and oh whatever. But so what's interesting is that, you know, there's a lot of frustration in the in the workplace, just in general, not just on the HR side, but just in, in the workplace is that there's been quote unquote, so much catering to the, to the Y generation. But remember I said, there's two groups, right? Yeah. And the Ys are like, would you just please stop picking on us? But it, cause I hear that a lot too, but, but what's starting to happen now is that since, you know, business practice, business law, um, communications, everything that, that we know as experienced professionals now amongst the three of us, these guys are now coming into leadership positions and now they're learning those lessons. So they're, they're now having to go through the dynamic change shift to get on our page. We had to get on their page to get them in through the door. Now they're yeah. starting to have to get on our page because those business challenges have been there forever and they're yep. not going to change. Supply and demand, all that other good stuff, you know, you name it, gross yep. domestic product. How do you get investors to do this? Those problems don't and never will change. But now the forerunners on the why, when, as they come into these leadership roles, they're really starting to see what exactly is going on. It, which is a blessing, right? Which is great for companies. The, the great, the problem though, my, the, the second biggest problem I see is that, you know, the baby boomers who are leaving their companies, they're giving them to their families or they're passing on, they're selling them off. Right. They've done, a, you know, what they did traditionally is you take, you know, from person from my generation who's their top performer. Oh, now you're the COO. Oh, now you're your senior sales manager for, you know, half of the United States. But I'm not going to give you any management training and I'm no. not going to and I'm not going to and I'm not going to really tell you what to do because because yep. when when I when I get, got the business, nobody told me what to do and I had to figure it out on my own. So that's the way I'm going to do it for you. Well, we're literally in the crossfire because now it's our job. We're in senior management positions now. Yeah. It's our job to 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 train and promote and, and, and prepare the next generation of management. And we don't have the management skill levels. No. Like, I, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've sat down with senior VPs from organizations and say, and, and hear them bitch and moan about getting their people up to speed uh, in the way they need. And I, and I'm like, well, all right, well tell me what, what was done for you when you took over as the management, how much training did you get your management training? How much did you get? How much, uh, you know, and they're like zero. And I'm like, <laughs> well, guess what? <laughs> there ain't nothing in the training budget to teach you how to be a manager. So you can teach these people how to actually be focused managers and, and, and work hard. And so there's a lot. Of, and I think that's why my business is, you know, business in, you know, these leadership development courses online, why people are, you know, why, why Jacko and Leif are blowing up, you know, people are just, they're, they're starving for something that they can take and implement that helps them with all this stuff. And, and you know, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of charlatans out there that are selling, uh, 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 you know, a lot of snake oil and, and whiskey. Um, and so, so what, it, I'm sorry, but what what makes good leadership? I mean, what are the fundamentals? Does that change with the year or the industry or are there foundational elements to leadership, Dave? 
I, I think it, it's both more so f- uh, foundational, uh, but you got to know, you got to know who you're leading, right? That's, that's, you know, for us in our world, you, you, it's literally, you've got uh, <laughs> a, a, a captive audience, shall we say, right? You have an individual that uh, wants to uh, do something above and beyond. They want to serve their country. They go through this insane immersion training that teaches them how to be efficient down to the second uh, in, in every aspect, how to compartmentalize emotion, how to stay focused under stress, and then how to be driven to the support of, of the, you know, your comrades, right? So for us, and, you know, you, you're not going anywhere if you've got a five-year stint or 10-year or whatever you got, you're, you're not going anywhere, uh, and you have this beautiful built-in hierarchy of of uh, the military chain of command. And if you don't follow it or adhere to it, if you just say one day, just, you know, to hell with you, I'm not doing it, uh, you're going to Leavenworth. Uh, so, you know, I think every HR department in the world wish they could have that, right? Oh, every now and again we do. <laughs> so... But you have you have a case scenario. It's an impossibility. It does not translate into the civilian world. So I I believe great for me. And when I went out and started to evaluate. So frog logic is rooted in four main concepts. Right. With uh, with some two other concepts that are attached to the main one. So the first thing I teach is I teach people uh, to assess. Uh, evaluate and then to learn how to embrace their fear, right? Because fear is the main root problem that we have within the human condition that inhibits us from all success, whether it's uh, professional or personal uh, affair of of things that that uh, that inhibit us. Then then I focus on the self confidence issue. Now we live in a society now where we're we're so uh, hyper focused on on whether or not people are evaluating us in a, in, a, in a good light, right? Especially when we're on every social media app, we've got to post all our pictures and get the dopamine response of a like from how cool mm-hmm. our family photo on 4th of July was or whatever it is. So we've got that pressure now. And then, you know, so I, and, and then at work, you know, not maybe advancing the fact, your self-confidence is always under attack, I, I talk about. So I wear self-confidence. The third one is team life. Uh, and the fourth one is purpose, really teaching people how to discover purpose. But the team life one, when I was doing the research on this and what makes a great team, I started going through every great team I could find in history and really began to evaluate, you know, the what were the core components that made these teams function at the highest level? Um, and, you know, and after you get by, you know, commitment, the, the essence of all effort is the, what is the level of your commitment? What are you willing to endure in order to achieve your objective? And then the second is how well trained are you for what you're being asked to do or to do with other people? And then the third is communicate. How well do you communicate the mission, the ideas? And the last one was leadership. Really all great, the greatest teams in history, uh, whether they were doing good or doing bad, uh, they all had this great central core leadership. And so when I started breaking those down, it became very apparent to me what I saw was essential and important. The, the first one that I really saw is that great leaders, they, they fundamentally like the chaos, the discomfort. Mm-hmm. They like the challenge, right? Uh, so I describe it as great leaders. Every great leader likes to be cold, wet, and sandy. And... <laughs> and 
And and I saw it again. I saw it literally, literally and figuratively. And 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 I've seen it whether it's in professional sports teams or collegiate. I've seen it in athletes or business owners or whomever. It's that great leaders. They like the the challenges that come with running a business. They like the challenge of of trying to figure out how to, you know weather the storm of, of not meeting payroll or how to generate fast business in a short amount of time, what, you know, how to change, how to pivot in a changing world, how to, you know, all this stuff. So they, they thrive on that. Um, the next one was, um, great, great leaders have profound situational awareness. Um, uh, you see companies that struggle are the leaders that are detached. Yes. Um, they don't understand, uh, they, they can, they can, you know, cognitively understand what they're hearing in their reports or what's going on on the front lines, but they're, they don't, they haven't, they're so far detached from actually feeling it, uh, that they've lost, uh, those, those, those cultural, uh, um, uh, bridges that need to take place. Like your leader needs to recognize that. The situation that, you know, Bob, who's selling in New York City versus, you know, Jane, who's selling in, in L.A., and those are two different, completely two different processes and two different experiences, two different environments. And so the, the, if a leader blows those off and says, no, this is the way, just do it this way, it should work either way, um, uh, really came out. And where I truly discovered that research, there's a gentleman out there, his name is Gert Hofstede. Um, he's the number one, um, uh, you guess you could call him a social psychologist in the world who has studied organizational and national culture. He's got this brilliant book called uh, Software for the Mind, where he's written, he's, he's interviewed over 10,000 organizations in every country in the world and, and administered these beautiful tests to, to, to see what are, you know, based on where the organization is, the, the subculture, the, the nationalized cultures play a profound effect on, on, on how things will get done, you know, and, and this guy is just off the chart. So reading his, it really became, you as a great leader can't deny the, the details of every situation. And you can't just apply one leadership technique. Like, I'm not just going to go into everyone and say, I'm going to apply the Jacko Willink uh, leadership today. And oh, <laughs> tomorrow, I'm going to, because I'm going to get sued after that, I'm going to apply. The, <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. His stuff is phenomenal. Actually, it's beautiful. It's really wonderful. I love the book, Extreme Ownership. I'm just busting his chops. Did you feel the ever- crack in the planet when yeah. you said it on my end? Yeah. <laughs> I felt choked out as I was saying it. But, you know, and then, and then tomorrow I'm going to use, you know, Dr. Daniel Goldman's emotional intelligence style. Right. And but you can't do that. Every situation is different. And more importantly, every individual is different. Absolutely. And so you have to pay close to the great leaders. They, they can tell you the details of every, you know, the real phenomenon ones I love are, are all really top end athletes like Wayne Gretzky. He can tell you, he can remember a, a period of a game, a moment, a play, the setup, what happened before the players around him, who it was wow. from 25 years ago, as if it was literally he had just played the game last night. So 
you know, great leaders have that way to process everything and not deny anything, but to, to manage the details efficiently. And then the next process is once they do that, uh, they're more inclined or better uh, prepared uh, to inspire every person on their team to become leaders themselves. And that's that's really a substantial difference. Well, there's so much, uh, I think, insecurity in jobs nowadays, especially if you've got a good paying job, you've got good insurance, uh, you're li- you got your new house in the suburbs, your kids are going to good schools, man, and, you know, there's this hot up and coming young kid is is crushing it and she is just dynamic. So what do you do as a senior management? Do you jump all over that and help them become the best they can? Or do you do you squash them a little bit and do you push them down because they're a threat to your 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 livelihood? And that's just human nature. Mm-hmm. So what I always look for with great leaders is a, a leader that that doesn't matter to them. They're going to inspire individuals to want to take leadership roles on a regular basis, right? That's the process. And, and they'll find a place for that person. They'll reward them accordingly, right? They're not about their, you know, their, their third home in Aspen. They're about uh, empowering uh, the growth of the internally because they recognize that their company is because of the people they hire. So that turning everybody into a leader. And then, um, you know, the, the last one is great, great, great leaders are willing to take risks. Um, and again, it's the leaders that are, uh, able to take those risks because they're able to manage their fears. Uh, they communicate really well with their, their team. Their team is committed. Uh, they've trained for the change. They're, they're ready. They're prepared. They know they're, they've done the work. And so they take, they take big risks and the people behind them want to take the risk too, because they know the reward could be substantial. I think something that you've touched on that I I can only speak for in my realm that I, I continue to battle is, and I'm sure you've heard it, um, is that nobody wants to do the performance review anymore. But it's not so much that it's ineffective in and of itself, it's how it's administered. And it goes back to you know, leadership and setting the expectation. That's a big one. I mean, because when you're talking about like, so I had, you know, it's like, well, I'm a leader and I had to figure it out for myself. It's like, okay, so we look as, you know, you look at an elite, an elite group like the SEAL teams. Do you think any one of those guys, I mean, it's a great question to ask because I would love to see what somebody would answer this. But do you honestly think that an effective team like the SEAL teams could have possibly gotten to where they were by just saying, we're going to throw you in the water and good luck and figure it out. No, it's like what no. you're talking about. It's the con- it's the constant beatdown. What people don't know is that even though there is, you know, in BUDS, there is, like you say, the beatdown that happens, but it's there for a reason. And it's there to create, look, cream rises to the top, right? That's just the way it is. And there's a reason why it's less than 1% of the entire Navy. You guys aren't made for parade. That's just not who you guys are. You're made to do something very specific that requires an individual at a specific level. So what makes that different than really trying to get an IT tech to a certain level of proficiency 
do you honestly think throwing them into the deep end of the digital pool is going to allow them to be successful? And, and I'll ask questions kind of similar, maybe not exactly in that nature, but it's like, if you want them to know something, why don't you just come out and tell them? There's, oh, yeah, there's yeah, a time for learning and then there's a time for experiencing, but give them the learning and then get out of the way and let them do it, but be there for them when they start falling back. Listen, as a person that is like, I, I you know, I, I put 257 young frogmen through training. Uh, I train uh, a, a pretty decent a, a number of, of foreign commandos. I've trained uh, case officers from the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, I've worked with the highest level professional collegiate athletes. Uh, I've written so much curriculum that my, my mind is, is, I you know, when I look at everything, I see curriculum, right? Uh, as a, you know, I, I like to think of myself as somebody that knows how to train people, how to write training, how to create curriculum and how to train them to be the best version of themselves. I think that's, that lends itself because I've, I've invested so much time in that and developing that skill set that I, I'm, I'm okay at it. I'm, am I great at it? No, but I'm, I'm pretty good at it. So what I look at immediately when dealing with any organization is show me your training platforms. Show me what you're doing. Here you have this, this expectation of performance, but there's no guideline to it. Mm -hmm. There's no nothing. And you're expecting these young people that really haven't experienced any high-level training, right, uh, to somehow figure it out on their own. Because, you, you know, you're, you're doing the jobs of five people and you need them to come in and, and just get on board and do it. And then when they make a mistake, you lose your mind and you wonder why, you know, fire them, get rid of them, get the next person in here. And it, it's just like human beings aren't like that. No. You, I mean, how long does it take, you know, to where I'm going to be at a point where like I'm 100% comfortable, my kids are, are squared away and prepared for the world, right? Never. There you go. How about that? Never. <laughs> All right. Uh, how, how long, wh when am I going to finally hit to a point where I feel like I am a, a, a master uh, motivational speaker? Never. Ain't going to happen because it's just that's the, the nature with which I understand uh, development and professional development. But, but I'm going to continue training and I'm going to continue pushing and teaching them as much as humanly possible. Uh, and the hard part is, is, you know, we, we, when under stress, uh, whatever those stressors may be, uh, our, our, our patience is, is, is minimized substantially. And, and out of that lack of patience, uh, we, 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 you know, the, the concept of giving people second chances and giving them a wide spectrum to fail in without any severe repercussions, that that's where the growth comes into play. But people are not investing. Companies are not investing and, and better training. They just aren't doing it. Nope. So, you know, you said that you started Team Frog Logic initially for kids. Mm -hmm. So since you have your own children, how do you apply those principles? Or <laughs> in, Really? It, because <laughs> they're the closest clients you will ever have. Uh, how, how by do you far. That's <laughs> um, a, that's, that's a, a, a great, a great quote, a good question, I should say. Um, so when I first started, I was horrible. Um, 
I'll tell you that. I, I, I was gone all the time. And when I was home, it was just about being fun and just that being present. And that was it. And then they started getting older. And now they're in their child development years. We've got a, you know, 11 year old. Uh, my fiance has an 11 year old and a seven year old. I have an eight year old and a six year old. So we have 11, eight, seven, six, all girls. <laughs> and when I, my, with my fiance, uh, she was the one who really taught me what parenting looks like. Uh, she was a single mom for about seven years. And she was the one who was like, listen, like we'd start to have actual conversations about what parenting meant. And she's like, listen, you can have all these little cool sayings, uh, but if you're not willing to apply them uh, and actually teach them in a way that works for them and their little identities, their little personalities, then all they are just these rules, right? And we've got not 18 rules that the girls have to recite for us every time we're all together, especially when we're dropping them off at school in the morning. And so, um, you know, you, you can't just have them regurgitate information uh, if they're not understanding how it applies to the life lesson itself. Um, so that's where great managers come into place, right? They, they do real time evaluation of their personnel and they don't come in and blow them out of the door and say, wow, you just handled that customer as worse as, than anything I've ever seen in my life. You suck. You should go home and, and drink yourself into a coma, right? We don't, you know, we don't say that, although it comes across like that. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, you idiot. You need to fix that. Instead, but instead of going, hey, let's take a let's take a look at what you're doing. Why don't we come in, sit down, or we'll spend? Even if you spend, imagine if if people were to spend ten minutes a week with their personnel, right, and doing the review, the real time reviews mm -hmm. of what we're watching. I mean, we we would do we'd do you know a a a, a ten minute run in the kill house, and we would spend an hour going over what happened in there, right in order to learn. Now yeah. that's excessive for sure. And nobody has that amount of time to spend on, 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 you know, but you know, most companies, it's not life and death. Although, you know, hospitals, I've worked with a bunch of hospitals before where it was and, and some of their profiles and how they did, you know, a peer evaluation or peer review, real-time peer reviews was abysmal. And, you know, they, they thought that these quarterly reviews was going to correct behavioral behavior and behavior, you know, even, even at its, at its, with immersion, uh, you know, it takes, you know, 60 to 90 days to take, to change a behavioral pattern. And that's perfect because you are hitting the nail on the head right there. It's all about an individual's behavior. And the, and so when you're talking about things like progressive discipline and performance management, yeah. you're not addressing the person. And I think people forget that because it, then we all, so what I see happening is that people get stuck in the fray, right? They get stuck in all those little details about whether they're a Z and X or a Y, if they're purple, polka dotted, pink or striped or whatever, right? They start getting into those details and then all of these narratives and all these stories start kicking in that really have nothing to do with the root and the core of what's going on. And that is, do you so moving somebody and helping them move the needle to get the desired behavior away from the undesired behavior yeah. that's it it is it is it is very simple now the task may be a little daunting but the concept of of behavior is so important 
because you're talking about a human being and human beings we behave our way into every situation and we behave our way out of it in every single one whether it's good bad ugly or indifferent we behave that's just what we do so if you're not focusing on behavior and I'm not talking about like shame on you kind of behavior. I'm talking about you know, the effectiveness. Right, exactly. Yeah. The effectiveness of what they're doing and how they are working through the, the task, the job, the function. That's what is the key thing that's missing. When I first got into the business and their, you know, behavior was a, a, a you know, a very strategic term, especially coming out of the, 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 um, the depression we were in. Um, you know, I, I used to label myself as a behavioral training expert, right? Because when you break down our program, essentially, we have the most efficient operant condition training program in the world. Uh, unfortunately, we don't spend a lot of time with positive, positive reinforcement. Uh, we do a lot of negative, <laughs> negative, which is the anomaly. Uh, and we still create what we create, which is the phenomenon of, of SEAL training. Um, but if you were to go in and sit down with any manager or even any C-suite level and ask them, all right, what, what styles of operant conditioning are you applying with your management styles? They, they look at you like you got a third eye in your head. And it's a very simple thing. You can go to Wikipedia and look up operant conditioning and just understand what are the triggers that drive people to do things, right? Right. It's it's there's those great there's a great book out there called Habit, right? And there's a, a bunch of the Daniel Pink stuff is good. Um, and which really breaks down, you know, why we do this. There's a brilliant, um, I'm a, my big thing is I'm a big fan of positive psychology. There's a a brilliant guy named Martin Seligman Mm -hmm. who was, uh, a protege of, um, uh, guy who founded humanistic psychology, uh, Abram Maslow. Um, and then recognized, uh, in mid nineties that, uh, we were spending far too much time on people's negative attributes, right? Mm-hmm. Their positive attributes. And so he began to generate this new concept called positive psychology. Um, and one of his great protégés is a guy named uh, uh, Tal Ben Shahir, which is an Israeli psychologist who ran the positive psychology program at Harvard at one time, which was the most attended course in Harvard's history, uh, the, the years he ran it. Uh, and there's actually for all your listeners, there's you can go to YouTube and just type in positive psychology, Harvard, and you can get the entire semester course online and video uh, from this Israeli psychologist. And it's it is life changing mm. because what he begins to break down is, listen, uh, every human being is going to show up pulling in uh, their emotional uh, status, uh, whether or not they're going through a divorce at home. Uh, they're struggling with their own health, whatever it is. Then you have the physical issues that people have to deal with in terms of fatigue or inability to learn a particular way or whatever. And then you have their cognitive ability to to interact with people. And if people are used to one type of way, then then they do that way, and it might be offensive to another. So you have all these all these interesting components that are driving this behavioral I- attitude. Uh, and then the company is supposed to say. Well, here are here are the 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 boundaries of behavioral we want you to experience here too. So that's a lot of stuff going on for a human being, right? Um, so I agree with you. I I'm I'm from the mindset. Hey, if you're experiencing challenges, you know, uh, stop all uh, engines. Uh, you know, enough to where you have one auxiliary going to you where you can stay, keep your business intact. 
But take a step back and let's reevaluate what we have to do in order to best to pull out the best in our people. Right. Like you said, to inspire a behavioral change that enhances the the company. And that's that really is. But just people don't understand enough about behavioralism. We all want to have the reward. We are looking for the rewards every day. Right. So if you understand what people, what the the motivational, I call them the motivational triggers, which you understand what the motivational trigger is for an individual, then learn how to pull that trigger for that particular person to achieve the objective. And, and it, it, you know, it's so much easier said than done for sure. But I I think it's not as, as, uh, you know, the psychologists out there want you to believe it's much more challenging and everybody requires at least a minimum decade of therapy before we can get the best out of them. But I, I disagree. I've seen the most dysfunctional people on the planet uh, do the most incredible things that you could possibly do. Um, so I don't know how they correlate. What what it is, is I think in our community, uh, we understand, we, we first we imprint the triggers we want through the training uh, and then we know how to pull them as a result. And that's why we get the results we do. It's just, I don't think organizations spend enough time on it. Right. Okay. So one of the questions that I'm asked as a business owner, and I'm very certain you, Dave, and you, Brenda, get asked a lot of times is for a first time entrepreneur, what what should people know before starting a business? Me first. Yeah, you first, Dave. Uh, You're on the Uh, hot seat. Yeah, you got it. Uh, First and foremost, uh, that it's really, really hard, but they know that. They've had enough people tell them. The next is keep your overhead low. Um, You know, that is the big thing I think I see people all the time. Uh, they, They go out and they start you know, getting interns or people that they want to hire because they didn't do the time or the effort to figure out how to do this or to do that, or they're going to hire a bookkeeper. They're going to do, you know, just do as much of it as you can by yourself until you get the feel for, for how to, how to make the sale, so to speak. I think that's really the key. I think people, uh, 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 immerse themselves in, in, in way too much debt, way too fast. And, and I think that that's the thing that just kind of, that just, it becomes too overwhelming. And then people are just like, you know, you have a couple dry spells, you know, and you might get those people initially are like, Hey, you know, just, Hey, make it, can you do one month with me and I'll pay you back after or whatever that looks like. And I, and I just think that's a, a, a big challenge for people is, is stay lean for as long as you can. Cool. What about you, Brenda? So I, so all three of us are are faith people, heavily faith people. Um, and there's a there's a, a passage, and very rarely will I ever cite anything. Um, but there's something that you. I asked you this question earlier, and that was, what do you think your core gift is? And there's a passage in the Bible that says, the gift will open the way. Yeah. Right. Your gift will open your way. And what I see happen all too often is that people say, well, I want to do this. And matter of fact, if you ever watch any of Steve Harvey's inspirational messages, he, he talks yeah. about this. He's and good. I and, yeah, he is. And it was really, really great. But you know, if you can you can be driven by passion, 
but make sure you're doing what you're good at and know what you're good at. Spend time figuring out what you're good at because if you go after what you're good at and build your passion around it, then you're going to be very successful. And, you know, it's like some people may want to start a franchise or something like that. It's like, okay, that's fantastic. But what in what within the concept of that franchise business that you're going off after are you good at? Because yeah. if you like, now that's the reason why I asked you. It's like, what do you think your gift, like, what do you think your, your core gift is? Because obviously you've built a very successful business around that. You know, Chira has her gifts too. And she's built her, I mean, she's an award-winning PR specialist. And that mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't happen because she just loves something. She brings a talent to the table. So if you're not capitalizing on what you're good at and actually applying it, you're you're going to start sucking wind. I mean, you're just, you're not going to like what you're doing and you're going to hate it. And all of a sudden it's this mistake and it's going to be, you're going to feel like you're failing. But here's the thing. If you look at it introspectively, fail is just an acronym for first attempt and learning. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. yeah. So if you're not taking the time to figure out what you're good at and really build that, then bring in people and have them do the stuff that you're not good at yeah. and, and coach them, set the expectation, you know, all the things that we've been talking about, let them be successful and add and apply success to your company. Man, you're, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to be on Mars with Dave Rutherford. Walk Amen. Around. Yeah. Walk around our, Mar- our lunar boots that don't work on Mars. <laughs> on the space time continuum. Oh. Wormholes. Yeah. Oh, I love the wormholes. I'm all about <laughs> and the string theory. Oh. oh. So like that's what I geek out and like I'll go to Khan Academy and start pulling up chaos string theory and try and wrap my mind around it. And then like half my gray matter melts out of my ear and I'm like, all right, I'm done with that. No, I totally get it. And I think that that's a bane also of a creative mind. The left, because you clearly use your right and your left brain with equal measure. Oh, thank so you, you. Can appreciate the more esoteric and abstract, but you can also apply it to the more Absolutely. linear. Thing. Yeah. 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 I, I, I like to, I like to thank the seal community for giving me uh, uh, some sense of practical thinking. Uh, <laughs> otherwise without it, I'd be a struggling <laughs> artist in like, in like Atlanta or some stuff like that. I don't know. Well, I'm Dude. So Chira, what about you? What do you think is most important for a first time entrepreneur before starting their very first business. What advice would you give them? Well, you know, referencing back to what you and Dave said, I'm a med school dropout. So I ended up in communications quite by accident. And I always tell anybody who wants to start a business, just like you said, Bren, um, do what you're good at innately. And I think how I applied dropping out of the science disciplines to do communications and media was because I really do care about people. So one, Mm -hmm. I learned from my mistakes. You will make plenty of mistakes and those are not the end. Those are opportunities for you to go, well, I'm not so good at this or this is what I can do differently. Two, as a new business owner, be prepared to put in more hours than you can imagine and sacrifice either financially or with relationships more than you ever thought. But there is that kind of center guidance that you have in your heart of hearts and your soul of souls that if it invigorates you with energy and passion beyond what you ever could have imagined, you're on the right track. Stay with it. Go with a good heart. Go with a service mind. Mm. 
and that can apply to your spiritual belief or just you know we are all energetic beings and if you plug in I know it sounds terribly abstract but if you just plug into that good life force then you will know you're on the right track Absolutely. do good things for good reasons the success will follow hard work failure amen <laughs> yeah i think if people get if they get too caught up i mean i'm i'm a full believer in vision boards i'm a, i'm a full believer in in writing out what you want i mean my birthday every year i write what i want for that year i fold it up i stick it in my wallet and I'll write six things and five out of those six things actually happen. You know, I mean, that's just, that's just, it, it's been, I've been doing this for now 10 years. I can't wait to see what I want for the next year, but, um, <laughs> but you know, but that is, that is absolutely true is that what you put out there, it comes back at you. So if you put the good stuff out and you're doing things authentic, you know, with authenticity and with integrity, man, stuff's going to, that doesn't mean that you're not going to face your challenges and you're not going to run into a knucklehead or two, but you're going to be able to, to deal with them from a better source. But if you constantly are out there cheating businesses and cheating your clients and, you know, bouncing checks and trying to do stuff that's just, you know, all with a negative intention to it. Well, you're never going to lead a peaceful life. Yeah. Well, you're never going to lead a peaceful life anyways as an entrepreneur. It's just not part. <laughs> That's true. It's, but I mean, like, with all the part negative. Of it, right? right. But but you won't have all that bad juju to be dealing with, too. I, I, you know, one of the hard things is, is, is we're, we, you know, human beings, we're competitive. And I think the greatest comment you made was about the sacrifice required. Um, and, and I think when people start sacrificing uh, their own sense of uh, 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 well-being, if you will, their own sense of balance uh, to ascertain um, this desire, right? I've got I've to gotta do this and and in, in order to have this right and i think people uh have a tendency to um lose perspective on on the true meaning of life which is exactly what you guys are talking about which is that sense of servitude that sense of greater purpose um you know mike Rowe, i it was one of the fav my fate probably my favorite interview i, I did on tnqp and and he says, you know, you, you, you just have to be passionate about the work, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? you know, be and like what you're saying, be good at what you do and, and, if, and do something that has good intentions to serve others in a, in a positive way and help people in some capacity. Then I think you're, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're headed down, you're headed at least in the right direction, so to speak, with that moral compass that, as your guide. Uh, however, man, you know, I work in many industries where there's a lot of money going back and forth. And I certainly have seen my fair share where, you know, uh, doing $150 million deals, uh, people will uh, have a tendency to uh, uh, develop a mild case of moral ambiguity. Amb ambiguity. And, and so... Just a little... Uh, I, it's, I mean, human nature is human nature. That's what I think, you know, the, the, what fascinates me so much about what it is I do for a living is trying to understand that uh, much, much, much more in terms of, you know, how we apply those pressures on ourselves 
how we keep ourselves in check, how, you know, I, I call it the negative insurgency, right? How, how do we manage that insurgency on a day in and day out basis so we can finish the day, uh, look ourselves in the mirror, pray to God and be grateful and thankful for the process that we're following right now and, and experiencing the growth that, that we all look for too. You know, I have always loved, every time I hear the negative insurgency that you would come up, because I listened to you a lot on TNQ, and I remember the first time I heard it, I, I heard your voice. It was the first thing that came out, and I'm thinking, who the hell is this? <laughs> it's like, wow, this guy is like off the chain. It's awesome. And then, you know, it just, it, it you know, I listened over time, and, um, you know, every time you start talking about the negative insurgency, I mean, and I loved how you phrase it, and I love how it's applied, and 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 it's absolutely right. I mean, it's like if you if you get lost in that, and it's very easy to do because I think hum, the human mind is, I think we're, it's hard to say if we're born that way, but our environments condition us to automatically go to the negative. And when I teach some of my courses, and when I say that people don't buy into that, I'll say, okay, great. And I, I, I always have two, you know, those large post-it note paper board thingies that people you can write on in the flip chart, right? That's the word I was trying to find. And I'll bring up two people, and one person has a red marker, the other one has a green. And I'll say, okay, audience, I want you guys to shout out emotions, just whatever it is. And, and you guys, if it's a positive emotion, you with the green write it. If it's a red emotion, with you and you write it. And they do. And I do this for about 30, 30 seconds, maybe 45 at the most. And then I'll stop and I'll look at them and say, okay, guys, which one of the two boards has more emotions on it? And they're floored because it's always the negative. Or if I see it building faster than the positive, I'll stop. And I'm like, okay, so which one's going quicker? And then they're just like blown out of the water. They're like, oh, crap, we really are. <laughs> and not a bunch of negative Nellies in the world. But, but that is very much it. And that's what we have to overcome. Because if we overcome our own negative chatter about things and how we are about things, how we perceive things, we can't fix anybody else, but we can always address ourselves. And in, until we cross those hurdles or at least are willing to be able to kind of eat some crow and 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 take it in, it's like, yeah, yeah I guess I kind of did do that a little bit, but I won't be doing it again, you know, kind of thing. We're always going to get in our way. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. You're if if you're innately uh, have a, a tendency towards negativity, even if you call it sarcasm, whatever you whatever it is, cultures that you operate in, you know, there's uh, there's always. And what I'm learning now is that you know some people just are much more practical, and and it's easier for them if they set their mind in that space. Uh, and and it doesn't necessarily mean they're fatalistic. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're, they're, you know, they're coming in and they're, you know, just, you know, dropping a, a negativity bomb on everybody. It, it could be, there's a lot of factors in why people condition themselves with uh, uh, a, a negative base response platform, right? Uh, as a defensive posture, as uh, to uh, lessen the expectation of failure, all these different uh, reasons why we do it. Um, but there are, uh, you know, it, it, just through some simple shifts in in leadership management whatever you can begin to uh uh alter the dialogue right mm -hmm. and that's really what it is if if people are at their core uh, generally have that kind of approach to it you're not going to change them overnight but what you can help them do is just 
recognize that, hey, for me, if we're interacting, try and choose a terminology that has a little bit more uh, positive connotation to it, right? Because we, we, a lot, so often we, we really don't, uh, we don't, we're not patient about how we express ourselves with one another. And I think within that, uh, uh, the immediate reactions that ha- are, are, are most of, of our dialogue throughout the day, uh, you know, there's a, a, a reoccurrence of negativity, just to, it's the way we evaluate the world, right? It's to, it's to keep things in check in our own minds so it doesn't become too overwhelming, right? Um, and so, yeah. I, you know, I think it's, 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 you know, for me and what I, when I'm working with people that are overly negative, it's like, hey, let's just try and change your, the, 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 the words you choose, Right. If, if you look at it like this and generally do, maybe just shift the word around. And that way, as you expose or express yourself, um, you know, people aren't hearing the the, uh, you know, the uh, impending doom of what you're you're emotionally managing right now. You know what I mean? And, and I and I think that just that that is really driven by HR, especially driven by marketing. Uh, and, and, and most especially driven by uh, um, the leadership, right? Listen, this is the style of company that this is. This is how I want people to talk to each other and then setting the example of that. And that changes things pretty dramatically. It sure does. And it really speaks to branding. You're absolutely right, Dave, because it's not only how you communicate to people. We as animals are hardwired to respond to the negative only because in the ancient days, it's what kept us alive. Yeah. Amen. Are habituated to looking toward the negative. So that doesn't surprise me, Brenda, your exercise there. One of the challenges I have as a communications and brandings expert is the fact that we leverage that psychology to create those negative narratives that we say to ourselves, that we establish within corporations. But I think there are ways to mitigate that messaging so that it it doesn't become that negative insurgency. It becomes more positive and affirming and acknowledges the human condition in ways that, yes, it gets your attention, but more importantly, it it empowers you versus disempowering you. Well, well, we go back to the fear concept, right? What is the greatest way to... uh ignite action as you, you right. induce a, a level of fear, right? Right. Why do you wake up uh, and drive an hour and a half every day through uh, crazy traffic to get to your job? Well, because you don't want to be, you want to be able to feed your family and that, that fear of not, you know, it's a good job and I won't be able to get another job. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when you show up and, and you're dealing with the, the manager who's an ass, you know, it's <laughs> like, all right, I, I don't want to get fired. So I'm going to tolerate this. And yeah, and, you know, and, and how we communicate and then how you communicate, you know, with yourself at the end of that day. How how do you, uh, you know, Native Americans call it smudging where you take, uh, you know, this beautiful sage and you wipe it across your skin and it gets all the, the negativity off you. And, you know, how do you smudge yourself every day? If, 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 if it's really difficult, people are what they'll go home, they'll drink a bottle of wine and take some Ambien to get to sleep. Right. Instead of going for a workout, you know, calling a, a close friend or doing something that they, you know, some hobby or passion they have, whether it's 
you know, who knows what the back remain, I don't know, whatever it is, making your own moon boots, who knows? Uh, <laughs> but, but bedazzle your own moon boots. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's why with self-confidence, you know, in, 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 in my eight missions for that, you know, uh, have a positive attitude is, is, is mission number one. Right. And, and, and that is really, uh, uh, you know, and a lot of people will, will, have a tendency to condemn motivation as a, uh, a really just a, a, this overly subjective concept that we uh, rely on far too great. But at its core, we all need motivation every single day. We need motivation to uh, do our jobs, to raise our children, to feed ourselves, uh, to interact with each other, people that we might not like. Uh, we need motivation to develop ourselves. So we need motivation to fight through the, the the challenges of life, the storm, the next storm, business and business or in personal lives or sicknesses, whatever it might be. I mean, you know, it, it you know, we're just coming off of of you know the Red Wings anniversary again, and mm-hmm. and and you know that that's a very challenging thing. Uh, and for you know, I put through most of those guys through training and. And, and, you know, work closely with Marcus for three and a half years. And so I, I feel this deep negativity about the time. But, but, you know, Marcus is a guy who always would say this. He goes, man, I'm, I'm still here. You know, yeah, I was a part of one of the worst days in, in, in our unit's history, but I, I made it. And I'm here. So every day I get above dirt is a gift. And, and, and so stuff like that from people uh, that are, have a much greater uh, perspective than I has really rubbed off on me. And so the power of positivity is a real thing. And, and it's up, you know, each day you wake up, you can be positive, you can be negative, you can be neutral. And, and it doesn't cost you anything to do any one of them. Um, and so you have to look at what you're, you're predisposed for and why from your cultural identity and background, your upbringing to the people you affiliate with now. Um, and, and, and if you surround yourself where there's ongoing negativity, like the HR department, then you're going to have, you're going to have, you know, it's going to be more challenging. I'm kidding. Nice. Uh, I get to do the parties, Brenda. You get to do the. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. So Dave, despite that last comment, we absolutely love to adore you. (laughs) We cannot begin to thank you for coming aboard. It has been absolutely fantastic and um yeah we're we're going to be blasting this one out everywhere because we want people to hear this message and first off folks if you're listening you're you're you know coming back to us and and joining our insanity yet time and time again and the fun that we have with it you know check us out on prladyhrladyshow.com that's our website you can find us on Facebook at PR Lady HR Lady Show, Instagram, PR Lady HR Lady Podcast, and on Twitter, we are PR Lady um, HR Lady as well. And then, you know, what you guys did on TNQ, we've adopted. Oh, sorry, it, now it's the no, shameless plug. Oh, it's all right. Now it's the shameless plug. And um, we, Chira and I, take a moment to say what we're very thankful for. So we would love to have you join us. But before you do that, would you please tell everybody where they can find you and how they can reach out to you and what they can follow? And Yep. Um, so uh, my website is uh, teamfroglogic.com. Uh, I'm on all social media sites at teamfroglogic. Um, and, uh, I have a YouTube channel, look up David Rutherford, Navy SEAL on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. I'm going to start posting a lot more videos on there. 
and and pretty soon, uh, actually, this is the first time I'm kind of announcing it, but I keep it on the hush hush. Uh, I, I think I'm going to start my own frog my Frog Logic podcast back up again. So, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. So that's uh, awesome. Yeah, that's where that's where everybody can find me. That is fantastic. So, so. So, so yeah, so I have no idea what I was going to say next, and we can edit that one right out, so that's all right. What'd you say? <laughs> now. I know. And we didn't have anybody really swear. It was great. It's a clean show. And it was a clean show. I don't have to flip it to explicit, but so anyway, so um, Dave, would you like to kick us off on what it is that you're most thankful for and grateful for? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for God's presence in my life. I'm very grateful every day to recognize that uh, his sacrifice enables me to be a better me uh, and it enables me to be a better fiance. It enables me to be a better uh, father, friend. Uh, and what I do specifically is, is all based on uh, that incredible forgiveness of my sin and my past life and and the desire and the ability to be a better man and to walk that apostolic path, that Jericho mile, uh, every day is is what I'm 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 grateful for most. That's awesome, Chira, my dear, my love bug. Oh well, yeah, you make me follow him. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> I am. I, I am grateful to Tukashila, Creator. Um, I'm I'm grateful for the gifts that I have been given, and on the heels of Fourth of July. I'm grateful for freedom and the people who have fought for it. I'm grateful for my children and opportunities like this where I meet other like-minded individuals and professionals. And I'm just so grateful to have this opportunity with you, Dave, and certainly with you always, Brenda. So I'll, I'll abbreviate my list there. <laughs> well, awesome. I, I am, I am, you know, it's really cool doing what I do. Um, in the volunteer work in the community and you know unlike you guys you know I'm a guest that's the way I look at it and so I have longed for such a long time to find a community that would accept me um, and I get accepted into this community and to me it is one of the biggest gifts so being able to spend time with you know Chira whose brother served on the teams you who have served on the teams is a real thrill and an honor and I don't take it very lightly so I'm I'm love you guys Thank both you. i think you're both phenomenal human beings um just talking with you guys just for as long as we have helps make me a better person and also helps affirm the fact that i'm not always the crazy one in the group so i appreciate that <laughs> check <laughs> yeah right but um really i mean this is you coming aboard and adding to the level of success of what it is that we're trying to accomplish is a great gift as well. So thank you, Dave, very much for taking the time and being willing to do this and being our first guest on top. Amen. I, I love it. That was it. That was the hook for me. I get to be number one. I love it. You're always number one. <laughs> awesome.